Greetings. Welcome to White Run Baptist Church Online. Today we're looking at the upward call number three, the right prayers. We'll be taking our message from the book of Philippians, and we're in chapter one, this introduction to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be looking at verses three through 11. And this series, The Upward Call, is based upon this letter to the Philippians, in which the climax of the letter is Paul talking about his striving toward the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. And as we'll see as we get closer to that, the upward call in Jesus Christ is the call of God to be like Jesus Christ. And this sermon series, therefore, is focused on the mindset and the practices that produce progress in response to this call. And it'll be an encouragement to strain forward to what lies ahead and to help others to do the same. So for some background, you can read the book of Acts chapter 16 to see how this church in Philippi began. And you can read about the events leading up to it, some of the things that happened there, and about some of the early converts in the church. But we begin today talking about this supreme privilege of prayer. And we're gonna look at Paul's example of how he prayed how he prays for the Philippians. And we're going to use that as a model for us because after all, this is inspired scripture that we're dealing with. The prayer is the greatest privilege of being a believer in Jesus Christ because all conversing with God, all relating to God is is in essence a prayer. And the relationship with God is the very purpose of eternal life. It's the very definition of eternal life according to Jesus. And so when we, when we talk about prayer, it is indeed our greatest privilege. Here's what uh, uh, E.M. Bounds said about prayer. He said, prayer should ne- not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. So what we're going to see in Paul's prayer here in Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11 is we're going to see not an exhaustive list of things to pray about, but we're going to see certain exemplary items, items that are related to the believer's upward call in Jesus Christ. Let's go right to the text and get started, shall we? Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, let's begin with the word of prayer. 
Father God, we pray this day that you will have your way with us with this scripture. We need your spirit to fully appreciate what these words mean. We need enlightenment from you. We need the drawing from you to draw us close and give us understanding. Perfect us now and give us the faith then to respond to the upward call that you've given us. Move us toward that Christ-likeness, Lord. And may we ever be striving forward for the prize as your servant Paul was. We thank you so much for this revelation that we've received in your word this day. And I pray that you'll use it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have the uh, beginning of this letter. And there are certain things I want to point out here. I want to point out here in verse 3, first of all, how emphatic this thanksgiving of his is. A, a, a key component of all prayer should be thanksgiving. And you'll see that over and over when thanksgiving and when prayer is mentioned in the Bible. They go hand in hand. Uh, in fact, they're very often one in the same. But take a look at verse 3 here and look how emphatic he is. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So he says, all my remembrance. And so he's being emphatic here. But look, in verse 4, he gets even more emphatic. He said, always in every prayer of mine for you all. And so there's three more times he emphasizes that this is all encompassing, that this is a all the time, every single time I'm in prayer about every single one of you, I'm giving thanks. And this indeed is a good general principle that in all things we ought to give thanks, in all things, in all remembrances, in all prayer, we ought to be giving thanks. He touches on this in chapter 4 in verse 6 when he says this, a famous verse that we have all heard, I hope. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So even in the encouragement to request things of God, we're told to do it with thanksgiving, that thanksgiving is a key component of our, our understanding of prayer, what it means to engage with God in this way. That verse comes with a promise. The very next verse says that's what's going to bring the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And not only will it bring his peace, but it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So powerful promises attached to the idea of going to God in prayer, making everything known to him, and with it all, thanksgiving. And so he prays thanks for them. And this praying in thanks, it gives him great joy. You'll notice that back there in verse 3, uh, when he prays, he says, um, I thank God in all my remembrance of you in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. And so this it gives him great joy to be thankful about these things. And what he's most thankful about is that they indeed are partnered in verse 5 in the gospel. And they are indeed um, partaking of grace with him even in the midst of his trials and his difficulties. So powerful things. He's thankful for what they're doing in summary in the cause of Christ. So 
Paul, of course, is thankful for what they're doing, that they've partnered with him in the gospel up to this point, but his is not a selfish thankfulness. He's not just thankful that they have helped him because we know the Philippian church sent him aid. He talks about it in some detail later in the letter. Uh, We know that they were supportive of him in prayer and in other ways and in communicating back and forth with other faithful people of God. But his is not selfish because look what he says in Philippians chapter 4 as he brings his letter to a close. He mentions their help that they have given him. And, you know, he, he is very happy about it. And he says, you're the only ones that have partnered with me all along. And you even sent me help when I was in another city that had a church that should have been taking care of me. But he said, you even sent me things then. And he says in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift. It's not that I want what you send me. It's not that I desire what it is that you've provided, though those were things he needed. He said, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul was interested and he was thankful for what they had done, not because of the benefit that it gave him, but because of the benefit it gave them that they were able to exercise their good works in Jesus Christ, that they were able to have credited to their account, so to speak, in heaven, some of this imperishable treasure that Jesus talked about. He said, store up for yourselves things in heaven that moth and rust can't destroy. You know, And he was talking about the good works and he was talking about righteousness. And Paul's happy, not just that they provided for him, but more importantly, that they stored up for themselves some of this treasure in heaven. He's more interested in that they did good works for God than that it had some personal benefit to him. He goes on to explain that those gifts were, according to the scripture there, a fragrant offering. Look at this in verse 18. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so this is why we give. This is why we serve. And this is why in right prayer, this is why we thank God for what he is doing and what people are doing in his name. This is powerful. As we pray for one another, thank God continually for everyone's partnership in the gospel. As they live their lives reflecting his principles, as they merely attend church or as they serve church in any way, as they raise godly families, as they give to the ministry of the church and to the missions work and things like that, as they proclaim to uh, other people the truth of the gospel, all these things that people do as they study their Bibles, as they pray, as they meditate upon his word and spend time with the Lord in prayer and with one another. Thank God for that. For no one comes about those things without him. We know that if anyone seeks God, if anyone is moving toward God, and if anyone is doing the true work of God, it it is that God is at work. That it is God who works in them and through them. So Paul here gives us an example of giving thanks for God and what he's doing in these great believers. And then in verse 9, he turns to how he intercedes to them. And so now he not only says, I give all those thanks for you for all these reasons, and, and he discusses that a bit, 
then in verse 9 here, he turns to what he is praying for them to receive. So he's first giving thanks to God for what he has done in them. Then he says, Lord, this is what I pray for them to receive. And so now he's directing prayer uh, to, you know, toward the Philippians and, and praying for God to move on their behalf. Well, how does he do that? Look at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Wants them to have abounding love abundant love. First of all, this word love is a self-sacrificing love that the Bible speaks of. Many of you know it as agape love. And agape love, there are several different Greek words for love. This particular word is a love that always results in action. In fact, the concept of agape is inseparable from some kind of a loving action. In this sense, the word does not represent an emotion or a feeling. It represents loving actions. Where this word is used gives it some very important uh, in, gives us some very important insight to what it means. It is used in the most famous verse in the Bible, probably John three sixteen, where it says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." that whosoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. And so it's given, yeah, God has this love, and it's love followed up by action. And then Jesus uses the words in his, uh, to his disciples when he sums up the laws, love the Lord your God, and he sums up the laws, love your neighbor as yourself. But then he gives a new law, a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And he says, this is how people will know that you're mine that you love one another. And so this would have to be action to be visible. This would have to be something played out. The love for one another, then the implication was it would be visible to others. And if it were a mere feeling, if it were even a good inward attitude, it wouldn't be visible by others until it had resulted in its fruit of action. So this is not a call to a feeling. It's a call to action. And it's not just a call to action. It is a call to action that specifically glorifies God, which we'll talk about momentarily. This is what the knowledge and the discernment's about. Now, I want to talk about the the word abound for a moment. The word abound is a word that was used of a flower uh, going from bud to full bloom. And so this, this picture that this word all by itself, this word is a picture in itself, is the picture of a, a flower going from budding to going to a full bloom. A powerful word in and of itself. I want your love to abound. And this word could be used to mean to overflow. Uh, Jesus uses the noun form of this word in John 10.10 when he says, in contrast to Satan, who only steals, kills, and destroys, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. He wants us not just to have life, but to have life abundantly. And we know that's eternal life. That is a, a life that never ends and a life that ever improves. A life that in eternity is spent with a God in, in this wonderful perfection of the new heaven and new earth in his very presence. That's abundant. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is overflowing. 
So this is further evidence that this is a love beyond emotion, a, a love beyond sentiment. It is to be abounding. And then he puts two qualifiers on this love. Notice once again what he says, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The word here for knowledge is not simply an academic knowledge of things, but this would be an experiential knowledge. This is a knowledge of experience. This word is used to translate uh, in the Old Testament a Hebrew term that meant an intimate knowledge, yada, you may have heard of that Hebrew word. And that word became a euphemism for the intercourse between a man and a woman. And so that speaks of an intimate knowledge of experience. But what does that have to do? What what does this knowledge have to do with love? Well, in order to abound in love, you must know love. And we know that not only is love from God, and in fact, God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, where it says that God is love, it says all all love is from God, and God, in fact, is love, it goes on to say that this love was made manifest, that that beautiful uh, word manifest means that it became something material. It became presented to us so that it could be sensed. And it was, of course, speaking of Jesus Christ, where that word is used of him, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the idea that that he became manifest. He came into the world. He was love incarnate, love in the flesh. And so this is a powerful truth for us to understand. So if we are to know love and we are to abound in love, we must, must know Jesus Christ. And we cannot properly love without relationship to God. And our love is only right and effective in as much as we are close to God. Now, this is one we need to be careful because we need to understand that other people, other human beings that are outside of Christ, they can do good things. But the question remains, can they do loving things? You know, why do people who are not in Christ do good things? Let's go there. Let's ask that question and answer it from the scripture in order to understand. We know, according to Romans chapter 2, that God wrote the law on the heart of human beings and that their conscience bears witness to it. But we also know from other writings of Paul that those without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're slaves to sin. They're slaves to the way of this world. They go about all of their time trying to fulfill their desires of their mind and their body. And in doing such, we know that they are led then by the system of this world under the guidance of Satan himself. And so we have no room in there for a, a pure motivation of love. And so it's difficult for us to say that without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we can love it all. Now, 
people can do nice things. People can do things that we would consider loving things. They can save your life. They can give you great benefit. They can raise you up. They can, they can do magnificent and beautiful things. But the glory has to go back to God for putting that in their heart to do. And the societal pressures and the internal desires that this person has, for whatever reason, they've done a good thing. But in order to have rightly motivated action, action motivated by love, we must be acquainted with love himself. And that is why Paul puts as a qualifier on this, I want you to abound with love more and more with knowledge and with discernment. Now, discernment is an interesting word that comes from the concept of perceiving, sensory perception or understanding to perceive then with the mind, so to speak. It is basically the ability to make moral judgments, discernment, the ability to make moral judgments. Once again, we're thrown back on the impossibility of love without relationship to love himself, God, because in order to discern, to make moral judgments, we must know the moral standard. And the moral standard is God himself. This world has its own standards. Sometimes they align with God's standards. Most often they don't perfectly align with God's standards. And so we're, we're left to see that we must have discernment to be able to tell what is right and what is wrong. The reason why that's important is because, as we said, this love is an action. And this love is going to be exercised in response to perceived needs. So that leaves an open field of things that we could be involved in, in action for someone else. We have to be able to decide of all the things we can do, what is the right thing to do? A perfect and timely modern example of this would be to raise the question, how do we love a friend? in a lifestyle that is counter to God's revealed will for humankind. What does loving action look like? Well, we use our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the scripture, and discernment in order to find the answer of that. Our knowledge of God says that we must desire for that person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is their only hope. No, no goodness in this life no perfect life as the world defines it can compare to an eternity with or without Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand that the most important thing for any human being is not their comfort now and today, but is their eternal standing with the Lord. Knowing that then, we understand we must proclaim to them the truth of God. We must bring forth the truth that God is holy and that no one can come to God in sin, but that Jesus Christ came to pay the price for sins, that those who believe in him and then repent or turn from those sins can have relationship with God. 
We cannot compromise those essentials in dealing with someone in a lifestyle that is counter to God. Because if they indeed want, say they want to come to God or they claim to be in Christ, but yet they're hanging, clinging to the sin, to this lifestyle, we cannot believe that that person is genuinely converted. Because Jesus said, follow me. And the Bible says in 1 John, it says, you know, that love of the world is enmity with God. And so that we would have to forsake our ways of doing things. We'd have to forsake our sins. We'd have to turn from them. And we would have to follow Christ. And this is what it means about dying to self. We'll get to that more later in the series when Paul talks about such things. But we know that there's no sin also because we know God. We know there's no sin that the power of God cannot overcome. So see, our knowledge of God tells us they have to have the gospel. Our knowledge of God tells us what that gospel is. But our knowledge of God also reminds us that there's no sin that God can't overcome by his power. So then we have not only the impulse to share the truth, but our discernment then gives us the wisdom to know how. And in sharing the truth with someone in the situation we described, we walk a narrow way between two ditches. On the one side of the road, the ditch you can fall into is to condemn them without proclaiming the truth to them. That is to focus on their sin to the exclusion of the gospel of grace. Remember that Jesus indeed sat with sinners. He ate meals with sinners. But while he did that, middle of the road, he taught them the gospel truth, that they would have to repent of those sins. His preaching began with repentance, as did John the Baptist, as did the apostles in the early church. And so we don't want to merely condemn, but we want to come here and say, but that must be repented of. And the gospel is this, that Christ died for those things. That's the ditch on one side of the road is just simply condemn their sin. Oh, you're in the sin and you're going to hell for it and everything else. We want to come. We want to bring them center, preach the gospel to them, that God can overcome that sin, that you can walk away from that in the power of God and you can know him. The ditch on the other side of the road is this. It's affirmation without proclamation. In other words, this would be the lie that suggests, oh, you're fine the way you are. You can come to God. God just wants you the way you are. And it's often been said in the church that God gives a come-as-you-are kind of call. Indeed, he does. He finds people in the craziest of circumstances, in the deepest of sin. He finds them where they are, he convicts them, and he saves them. But they're not going to stay that way if they're genuinely converted. They cannot stay that way. That's why there's passage after passage in the New Testament that says, you know, no liars are going to find their, their way to heaven, and no adulterers or idolaters or anything else are going to find their way into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they'll be changing, and they will come into the kingdom of heaven on the merits of the righteousness of Christ, but they will come in undergoing a process of change undergoing what we call sanctification. So the two sides of the road we want to avoid. We don't want to merely condemn a person. We want to mention the sin and 
tell the gospel. But then on the other side, we don't want to affirm a person and say, oh, no, you're, you're absolutely fine the way you are. Yeah, go on being the way you are. L- let me tell you about Jesus. No, we, we need to be right down the center of this in which we say realistically and use our own example if necessary. We are all under sin. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we would but believe in Jesus Christ and repent and turn from our sins and put our trust in him and what he did for our sins, we can be saved. That is love with knowledge and discernment. To know what God is like, to be able to discern right and wrong, what is the right way to do this. We practice love with discernment, discernment only possible with experiential knowledge of God. Interestingly, That is the exact definition of eternal life that Jesus gives in John chapter 17, verse 3. He defines eternal life in terms of relationship with Him and with the Father. That is His definition of eternal life. You ever heard the thing, to know me is to love me? (laughs) To know Jesus Christ is to know Him and to love Him. Well, he goes on, Paul goes on, this. he doesn't just leave it at this. He says, I want you to be abounding more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment. Then verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent. In other words, you're going to, you're going to be able to test and know what is right once you have this knowledge and discernment. But he goes, and so, in other words, this would produce someone that is pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now this word for purity here is really interesting that they would be pure. It comes from two words in the Greek. It is two words mashed together in a very interesting way. It is the word for a ray of sunlight and the word for judgment. See if you get the picture here. The word for a ray of sunlight and the word for judgment. In other words, How do we really evaluate a thing? If we want to look at it and really evaluate it and really inspect it, if we really want to judge it, we're going to take it into the sunlight. We're going to take it into that that mercifulness white light of the sun, the broad spectrum radiation that comes from the sun that even includes things that we cannot see coming from it and we're going to take this thing out there and we're going to hold it up to the sun and and we're going to evaluate it according to how the sun will reveal everything that's true about it. This is this word for purity and his prayer is that in abounding in love that these believers would come to the day of Christ, that is the day of judgment in Jesus Christ, they would come to this being pure without fault. Now, does this mean sinless? Well, we know that we're not going to reach sinlessness this side of heaven. But it does mean pure. And in the context, it seems to be that he's saying we would be free from defiling sins because he combines it with another word there, uh, pure and blameless. Now, the idea of being blameless is, you know, that no one could look at us and bring evidence against us and convict us of a thing. And blameless does not mean sinless. It's not the same thing. You're blameless if you stole something, but you confess to it, 
You did what it was ever necessary to the courts, and you restored it to the owner. Then that's someone who is now blameless. Why? You could say, yeah, but they stole. But you know what? They paid for the crime. They owned up to it. They did what was right by the courts. They are now righteous according to the law. You can't bring that to to bear against them again. In our legal system in the United States, we call that double jeopardy, to try someone for the same crime twice. And indeed, it's the same kind of thing in God's accounting. This is someone that is not free from sin, but they're someone that is right with the world. They're right with things. They've repented of sin. They've turned from sin. They've made reparations where necessary. And when we combine that with the idea of being pure, what is presented to us is a picture of an upright Christian person. When, when you would say they were a fine Christian person, this is what you should be picturing. Someone that no one in the neighborhood is going to bring an accusation against him. There's not going to be some black mark in their past that's going to rear its ugly head and, and all of a sudden take them out. No, this is someone that's pure and blameless. And it says in the day of Christ. And so this is... Um, to be recognized as behavior befitting Christ. And this would mean uh, not just good results, but good intentions along the way. We know this is right, and Paul prays for it. He prays for the Philippians to abound in love so that they will be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. There's another aspect to understanding this relationship of them abounding in love and so be being pure and blameless. Like I said, we're not sinless when we come to the judgment, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the Christian life is not a life about achieving salvation. It is a life of being assured of one's salvation by the continued saving work that God is doing in you. In other words, the process of sanctification. This is how we know that we are in Christ by the evidence of it is the works that we do. We don't know that we're saved by any particular action we took, by any particular feeling we had at any particular time. We know if we're in a process of abounding in love, if we are doing the right things for the right reasons, and this is progressing. In other words, it's a little better this year than it was last year, and and it looks altogether like it's going to be a little better next year than it was this year. And so this is the evidence. This is the working out our salvation with fear and trembling we'll talk about later in the series. But this indeed is a powerful thing to recognize that this is what Paul is praying for, that these are people that will know that they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ even before that day comes because their love will be abounding that will be obvious to everyone. So in a blamelessness, no accusation can be made. Paul prays for them to abound with love and knowledge, uh, love with knowledge and all discernment so that they'll be well prepared for the judgment of Christ, having also the fruit of righteousness. This last thing I want to talk about is this fruit of righteousness. You can see there that's in the last part of the verse here in verse 11. Actually, it's in the middle of the verse there. The fruit of righteousness. 
Now, the ultimate proof of our righteousness is that it bears fruit. In the Bible, uh, fruit is given as the evidence of something that's underlying and true. And let's take an example of an apple tree. When you go up to a tree, the single best evidence that you will ever have that that is an apple tree is that you find an apple growing on it. I know it seems incredibly obvious, but you don't need to do a genetic test. You don't need to get out books and, and, and attempt to classify it based on other empirical data. The one piece of empirical data is enough. It had an apple growing on it. And you pluck the apple and you say, there's my evidence. It is the fruit of it. And what Paul is saying here is that he wants us to be filled, the Philippians, and then by extrapolation, us, all believers, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. In other words, if indeed you have Jesus Christ inside you, you will become a fountain giving forth this living water. You will become a tree bearing living fruit, fruit of righteousness, beautiful fruit to be examined by your Father, to be appreciated by the world, to be praised to God by all your fellow believers. And this would be not righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ that bears fruit in us. This is common throughout the Bibles, the idea that the heart overflows. Jesus says that it's the heart that overflows into speech, that the speech that we say, the things we say, and by implication, the actions we take, those come from the heart. And this purifying relationship with Jesus Christ begins on the inside out. He changes the heart. The terms of the New Testament is to take the heart of stone, give a heart of flesh, or to circumcise the heart. That is to make a cut in the heart. And this purifying relationship with Jesus Christ, this is how you will know that you're saved. Here's your security, that you are progressing in sanctification, a course and a rate that is a God thing. This is how others will see Jesus in you. As the song says, let others see Jesus in you. This is letting your light shine before men so that they will see your good works as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Glory. Well, that reminds us of something else. That reminds us of what we just saw back there in the book of Philippians. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The goal of all these things, everything that Paul has shown that he prays for these Philippians about, everything that he mentions here is what? To the glory and praise of God. Why is that? Well, first of all, because it's his righteousness that is in us. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have on us. It's his gospel that has made knowledge of him possible. It's his spirit that has made knowledge of him sought by us. And it's his spirit in which we walk and his spirit that brings the love of God to us and 
through us. It's this righteousness of Christ that bears fruit, and therefore God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. 100% of the glory of your salvation and anything good you've ever done in your life is going to go to God. It's glory to Him because it's Him who works in you. If we back up to verse 4, notice what it says there. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Why? Um, In verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, and that's what I wanted to look at, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. The work that's being done in you, he gets credit for starting it. He gets credit for continuing it, and we praise him for it. Why? Because with him, it can't fail. With him, it will not fail. He will bring it to completion. He will finish what he started. He will fulfill every promise that he has ever made. For God is good and God is powerful. And this is what he has done. He is not. He loves you too much to leave your destiny in your own hands. Now, can we refuse him? Can we fight him? Yeah, we do all the time. Many people refuse him unto death. But understand this, that when it comes to being on that road to sanctification, he's carrying you. And you need to cooperate, lest you face his discipline, lest you make the road hard for you. But he will carry you through to completion. And the difference will be the joy that you have. The ESV Study Bible says this, Uh, regarding this passage. It says, genuine spiritual progress is rooted in what God has done, is doing, and will do. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is described as he who was and is and is to come. What God has done, what he is currently doing, and what he will do is real spiritual progress in his people. So what do I do with all this? Well, it's a fairly easy invitation today. And it's something that should be fairly, you know, easy for us to grasp. And and it's this, it's basically this. Pray for these things. Pray for all these things. Take the outline that I've given you and, and open up the scripture, most importantly, and lay that out there and say, I'm going to pray for these things. I'm going to pray for them for myself. I'm going to pray for them for my friends and family, for my church family, for my church leadership, for everyone who serves in the church. I'm going to pray these things for my lost neighbor. Yeah. If you pray that love will abound in them, what will that mean? Well, they're going to have to come to a knowledge of God. You're praying for that, right? You're praying for their salvation. You should be because they won't pray for it themselves. It's up to you. You pray for this, for them, for everyone around you. Pray for the love to be abounding in your church so that people will see that you belong to Jesus Christ. They'll see that there's something different. That will be the evidence of your faith. Everybody wants a miracle. But I tell you the truth, that a a group of people gathered together loving one another, loving their neighbor in the way that the Bible describes, that's miraculous in our day and age. You don't need to raise the dead. 
You don't need to heal someone of their infirmities. You just need to show them love in the midst of their infirmities, life in the midst of their death. You need to show them the love, the abounding love of Jesus Christ. And the way you're going to be able to do that is first pray for these things. This is what Paul was praying for. The Holy Spirit has pulled back the curtain on Paul's life. We've peered in on him while he's praying in prayer for the Philippian church and by extrapolation in prayer for all his churches and even the future ones like you and I. He was praying for these things. We ought to follow his example and partake in this with him. And you know what you'll have? You'll have joy. Look again at the scriptures here and look what he says in verse 3. I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Do you want joy in your life? Do you want joy in the lives of people around you? Because let me tell you something about joy. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is not dependent upon achievement. Joy is not even dependent upon how sanctified you are in Christ and how good you are and the good works that you do. Joy doesn't even depend upon that. Joy surpasses all those things. And if you want the example of that, here's a letter from Paul written from prison. And he says he's praying with joy because these things can come to pass. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that all of us today, hearing the message, giving the message, all of us indeed, you'd give us the faith to bring these kind of things to you in prayer. May we pray for one another, first of all, for thanks. We thank you that we are in the position we're in, that you've drawn us to yourself, that we're hearing the word of God, whatever place anyone finds himself at, listening to your word. We thank you because after all, we're listening to your word, which is far better than the alternative. And we thank you for everyone's position in whatever ministry you've called them to right now, because we understand that is of you. That is something that you've done. You've put them there and you've put the righteousness of Christ in them and it's overflowing and it's having its result in love. It's having their its result in a changed life, that they're not the same they were when you started working with them. And they won't be the same tomorrow. You keep working. You keep changing. First of all, we thank you. And then we pray, Lord, we pray that your people would have abounding love and not just some kind of random feeling, not a, not a silly reckless love, but no, a love that's targeted, a love that is known, a love with knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of what he is like. That's the love we want. A love that has knowledge and discernment. So we know how this love can act out so that we do the right things for those around us. Let us to have the, the compassion that Jesus Christ had, but let us also preach the gospel that he preached, for that is balanced and that is love. To preach someone some other gospel, Lord, to preach to somebody that they're okay the way they are, that they can continue in sin, that God just loves them unconditionally the way they are, Lord, those are not only lies. They, they, these are unhelpful. This is not love. 
Lord, that would be deception. That would be the opposite of love. Let us love them to tell them the truth, Lord. Let us love them to know that, yes, God is is unhappy with sin. He, he brings his wrath to bear against it, but that sin can be forgiven in the work of Christ. And if we would but repent, he will purify us of that sin. Lord, you have promised that if we confess our sins, that you are both faithful and just, and you forgive those sins, and you purify us from every kind of unrighteousness. Let us grab hold of these things today in faith. Let us pray them for one another and let your church be known by it. Please mark us with the love of Christ so that the world will see what you are really like. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for attending with us today, and I pray that you'll uh, take this to heart and enjoy the series as it unfolds. If you want to know more about prayer, you can peruse our sermons on Sermon Audio, and you'll find many on the subject there. Some that might be particularly powerful is anything that I've done from John 17 uh, has really had a great impact on my prayer life, so that might be the next place for you to turn. But uh, until then, you can find us at whitesrun.org. And you can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I hope you look those things up and I hope you contact us. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any questions. We answer those personally and we don't put you on a mailing list. We just want to be as helpful to you as possible. So reach out to us and may God bless you. May he fill you with joy and every knowledge of him. 